want to just start out with a prayer. Lord, I just thank you that you are so, so good to us. You have won everything for us. You have done everything for us. God, I pray that we would take hold of what you've done for us and walk and operate and live from a place of victory, believing, knowing, choosing what you've done for us, God, that there no longer be any lies or spirit of deception that holds us down, God, that we would run the race. We would run the race to receive the prize, Lord. I thank you, God, what you're doing in our midst, God. I pray, Lord, that you do even more. You meet us here right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Have your way in this assembly, Lord. Amen. Oh, I was going to put that away. All right. Um, I was talking to Juliana, one of my favorite people, who's going to be young next Friday, 60 years young. Or you can be 39 like me because that's what I do. And she was asking me about, you know, my sermon and stuff like that. And I said, listen, hi, Jay. Every sermon I do, I'm just preaching to myself. It's just what I'm going through for myself. And I'm hoping that it has some application to you people. Really, that's, that is the truth. Last week, I um, preached on mindset. So this is kind of mindset part two. Only I named it something different just to be different. And it's called living from victory. Because really, I think that when we boil down to it, besides my favorite saying from Gary Smalley, life is just about relationships, and the rest is just details, life is also just about attitude. It's about your mindset. It's about what you choose to believe. And we can either believe um, the enemy or we can believe God. It's kind of as simple as that. I, I told you my testimony last week about how, um, you know, I went to the doctor and I said, I'm so depressed, and, or I'm so, whatever. I thought I was pre-menopause. It was during the um, 9-11 when the war happened and my husband got sent off to Iraq and I was so stressed out and I didn't know what to do and I went to the doctor and I said something's wrong with me. My, my hormones must be all goofed up. She said, no, you're just depressed. And she was real mean about it. And I was like, I can't believe she said that about me. I'm not depressed. And I went home and I'm like, I think I'm really depressed. You know, and it was a kind of a eye-opener for me. And what she did was maybe not nice, but it was right because she kind of confronted me with my unbelief. She confronted me with what I was going through. I w was professing Christian. Maybe I was a Christian atheist. But I was a professing Christian, and yet I was not living as a professing Christian because I was stressed out day after day after day. I can remember, because my husband at the time was working for United Airlines, and they went bankrupt. And he was over in Iraq, and I, like, I didn't know what we were going to do with our life. Like, were we going to lose the job? Was I going to have to sell my house? What was, what was going to happen? And I remember every single day obsessively. You know how you had those obsessive thoughts in your mind where you can't get them out of your mind? You just think about them over and over and over. I thought about our financial situation over and over and over. And I'd get my little book out, and I would add up our bills every day. Like, they didn't change from day to day, but I had to add them up every day and make sure I had enough money to cover them every month because that was my little OCD ritual of trying to meet my own needs and trying to comfort myself by going through this weird little ritual, right? So when this lady confronted me and she says, I think you're depressed in the super mean way that she did, I had to really take a long look at my life and say, what are you doing? You're, you either believe who God says he is or you don't. 
You live one way from one place of belief or you don't. Are you a Christian or are you not? Because if you are, you have to make a decision out of faith that God's promises are really real, that they're really real. And even though we don't see them or we're going through really bad circumstances, he's on the throne. He's done the job for us. And all we have to do is partner with him and go along for the ride. And he still does miracles. But that's a really hard place to get through when you're in a lot of fear or you're in a lot of bondage, you're going through a lot of trauma. That's hard. But that, I believe that that's the kind of mindset I'm talking about, where we have to come to the place as mature Christians where we say this is the line in the sand and I'm going to stand here come hell or high water. This is where I stand. I stand believing what God has said about me and about this world. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I just want to bolster our faith in that God is who he says he is. And we get to live from a place of victory because he's already won the victory. And we get to participate in that. And everything hinges on whether we want to go the whole way with him or not, right? So much of what we experience in life is because, man, we're just scared to step out. We're scared to really hold on to what God says about us. But I'm going to just challenge us in that in a little bit, a little way. Um, so the definition of victory from my favorite place, you know, the Internet, says um, victory <laughs> is an act of defending, defeating an enemy or opponent in a battle game or other competition. That's the definition of a victory. It implies conflict and the existence of an opponent. You know, some people think we don't have an enemy or an opponent in this world. I'm here to tell you, we have conflict and we have an opponent. That's our reality. So we, let's just get that out of the way. But what, has, what does the Bible say about victory? It says we are more than conquerors. It says that Jesus has overcome the world. The Lord fights for us and gives us victory. What's your favorite one, Chris, on your arm? What's it say? Amen. On his arm. Isn't that great? And the Bible says the victory belongs to the Lord. Yet I think what a lot of us struggle with is what I would call spiritual underachievers or Christian atheists. Spiritual underachievers, meaning that we know this, but we don't believe this. And so we live in such a way that we're victims, we're powerless, we are um, depressed. Now, I'm, hear me. I'm not saying all depression is one thing. I'm just saying some depression comes from believing what the world says about our future and our reality. I don't know about you, but I'm real tired of the political divisiveness that's going on in our world. Real tired of it. And I think, and I believe, it's a spiritual agenda to depress and make us feel hopeless as Christians, that God is not alive and well on planet Earth. And I'm here to tell you, God's alive and well on planet Earth. He's alive and well. And not only that, he's already won the battle. Just like what was the, um, what were the words that I like so much that you sang? It was um, in that third song. What were the words of that? Oh, Jan, I put her on the spot. She can't think of it now. Maybe it was that. No. You like that one? It's the idea that, oh, God's not worried. Why am I worried? That's what it is. God's not worried about politics. Why am I worried about it? 
God's not worried about the United States. Why am I worried about it? What right do I have to be worried if God's not worried? Right? And Jay is our local politician right there, but you know what I'm talking about, right? If God's not worried, I don't need to be worried about if our, as, <laughs> if our country's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't need to worry about that because God's on the throne and he's in control. You know, Tom Corgan said something really good. We were talking about um, the future of real estate and stuff like that and things are coming down the pike and we we're like, oh, that doesn't look good for real estate. And he goes, yeah, but so what? God will bring something else along. And I'm like, amen, brother. I don't have to worry about where real estate's going because you know what? God's going to bring something along better for me to provide for me and my family. And I'm like, I've got to remember God's on the throne and he's not worried. So I don't need to be worried. I think that's such a great song. That is a good word, isn't it? Thank you. That's my husband. I love that. That's right. So I think our spiritual underachiever comes from we do things that God has already, he's already won the battle for us, so why are we fighting that particular battle? We need to move on to a place of victory. Am I right? Say amen, Joe. Thank you, Joseph. So our scripture for today comes from Matthew 16, 18 through 19. I'm going to read it first in the NIV. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We're all pretty familiar with that translation, right? Hallelujah, Joe. Thank you. So I'm going to read it in in the Passion. Thank you so much. When Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question. What are the people saying about me, the Son of Man? Who do they believe I am? They answered, some are convinced you are John the baptizer. Others say you are Elijah reincarnated or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he says to the disciples, who do you say I am? Simon Peter spoke up and said, you are the anointed son, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are favored and privileged, Simeon, Simon, son of Jonah, for you didn't discover this on your own, but my Father in heaven has supernaturally revealed it to you. I give you the name Peter, a stone. And this truth of who I am will be the bedrock foundation of which I will build my church, my legislative assembly. And the power of death will not be able to overpower it. I give you the keys of heaven's kingdom to forbid on earth that which is forbidden in heaven, and to release on earth that which is released in heaven. Isn't that a good translation? I love that. So like I said, this is really part two of my message, Changing Your Mindset. Just a different title. I think that, belie- that um, the number one thing about victory is, is knowing our authority. What kind of authority do we walk in? It's hard to have victory when you don't believe in your general or you don't believe in the battle plan. Or you, for us, we know the end of the battle, so we really shouldn't have any problem believing in victory. But sometimes we really don't. We know the end, but we don't really believe the end. Or we know the promises, but we really don't buy into them, right? I think that our victory is completely connected to the authority that we've been given and the authority that we believe in. You know, Bill Johnson says, I think this is really good. He says, the world around you takes the shape of the world within you. Have you ever met any people who are chronically fearful? Everything they do, I know a couple people who 
are so afraid of every single thing, they actually bring fear into their atmosphere. Instead of being atmosphere changers for good, they change their atmosphere with their fear. Have you ever felt people like that? Have you ever known people who have anger? And when you're around them, you feel the anger like rolling off them. Or maybe it's bitterness. Or maybe it's some other kind of discord. The reality is whatever we have inside of us, we manifest outside of us. And it's attracted to us. And we change the atmosphere in that way. If we have victory on the inside of us, victory is attracted to us. Does that kind of make sense? I had a situation just today, as a matter of fact, where I had to confront somebody. I'm not going to tell you the details of it, but I had to confront someone about um, a huge, I'll just say boundary, or um, it's one of my daughter's acquaintances, and I had to deal with a situation that had gotten out of hand, and, and she was be- my daughter was being taken advantage of. Wittingly or unwittingly, I don't know. I'm not going to make that pronouncement. But I had to, because it involved me, I had to actually confront this person and be very direct. I'm, they're a Christian. I'm a Christian. I had to do the right thing. The scripture says confront your brother before you go to the next level, so to speak. So I'm like, okay, before I take this to the next level, I need to actually confront this person in love. And my sweet daughter, my sweet, sweet daughter, who's only 20 years old, she's like, will you be nice about it, Mom? I'm like, of course I'll be nice about it. What's your course I'll be nice about it. One of the chronic things in, I will say, spiritual um, generational things that my side of the family deals with is the spirit of fear and the uh, desire to, um, to not have conflict, conflict avoidant, if you will. Even when you're in the right and that person's taking advantage of you, you'd rather just somehow... Mm, not look at it and avoid it and squeak out of it. And so I just like, you know, my Emma, I've got to do this. This is the right thing to do. I'm not in the wrong. I'm going to do it with confidence. I'm going to do it because it's right. I'm going to do it because I know that what I'm asking is not out of the question. And I'm going to operate out of a place which I know is truth, which what I'm asking is the right thing. And she's like, okay. I wrote the text. I didn't get anything back for a couple of hours. I just got a phone call before this started, and the person called me, and I said, I'm just so sorry. I really want to apologize. This never should have happened. I'm going to make it right. And, um, and I said, great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Let's move forward. And that was the end of it. But my point to you is, you guys, if I had exuded this fear of conflict and fear of confronting people and, and all this avoidance kind of thing, that would have gone on and on and on. And sometimes you have to, inside yourself, decide who you're going to be, and then you, that's the person that you put forward. Does that make sense? Sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. Am I right? Sometimes you choose to walk in victory and power, even though there's a little bit scared person going, man, I just don't know. But you still do it because people respond to what you exude. Is that right? Thank you for all that. I love that. So I want to talk about, I just want to, I'm going to be a little Brian Fenimore and try to break down the, um, break down the scriptures because I like how he does that. So I want to just start with, um, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Because, and, and back up a little bit. What, what was going on here is, is um, the Sadducees and Pharisees we're trying to trick Jesus and say, you know, are you the coming Messiah? Who are you really? He had performed all these miracles. People were following him. But there's a little bit of confusion about who he really was. Like, was he a prophet? 
you know, we expect the Messiah to come in on a horse and, and do a political thing, and he's not really doing the political thing, so we're kind of confused. He's done miracles, but we're not really sure who he is. And so Jesus says, well, who do the people say I am to his disciples? And they said, well, John the baptizer, because he had been killed. Maybe he's resurrected, or you're Elijah, or you whoever. But then he says to Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the anointed one, the son of the living God. And so Jesus says to him, right on. Oh, no, the first key to victory, I want to say this. The first key to victory is we have to recognize who Jesus is. And you know what? Not only who Jesus is, what he can do. We have to, and this is, you're going to love this, Steve, we have to walk in faith when sometimes it's not popular. You know, it might not have been, maybe the disciples didn't really know if they believed Jesus was the Messiah yet, but Peter stood up and said that he did. Peter said something that no other disciple is willing to say. This response is recorded in three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and the disciples said, well, the people say you're, you know, Elijah. Peter is the only one who said, no, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'm here to tell you the keys to victory sometimes depend on you going out on a limb with the Lord. Sometimes you have to go out on a limb and you have to say, you know what? I believe God has told me X, Y, or Z, and you guys might not be on board with that, but I believe that's what God's told me, and I'm going to walk in that. Now, am I saying you shouldn't have godly counsel? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that victory in the Lord sometimes, almost always, requires us to get out of our comfort zone. We can't stay comfortable and all huddled up with the world and really do the victorious things that God wants us to do. And my prime example, you know I'm going to say it, Bethel Church, Bill Johnson. Listen, that man's not popular. That man has a lot of people coming against him. That man is changing the world. Do you understand that because of Bethel Church, Redding, California is on the map? And Redding, California ain't nothing to go to. Let me just tell you right now. It is not a nice place. In fact, it's the opposite of a nice place. But I just want you to know that church has put them on the map. Not just like on the map, but economically, it is one of the number one industries in Redding, California. And I'll tell you something. People oppose what he's doing. There are Christians who are like, man, he's a heretic. He's doing these crazy things. You should stay away from him. Almost, you went to one of the um, worship events, and they had like protesters out the front, didn't they? But you know something? Whether you agree with that or not, and that's not what I want to debate, he is walking a path of faith because he believes that's what God's called him to do. And I'm telling you, if we're going to have victory in life, we have to walk a path of faith that sometimes is scary because we believe God has called us to it, but it's going to take us to bigger and better places and we're going to have an impact in the world that we wouldn't have otherwise. And that's for you right there. That's for you. Boy, that got me right there. And that's the truth. I'm telling you, that's the Lord. That's the Lord right there. We will not have an impact on this world the way God wants us to if we don't take a risk. Mm, that's good. Whew. <laughs> the, other, the second one is, Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, 
and on this rock I will build your church. Now there's a little bit of a pun going on here. It's hard to explain, but um, Peter's name was Simon, and then Jesus said, I am going to give you, he must have had a nickname. I'm going to give you a nickname. Um, it's Petra in the Greek, but it, Petros in the Greek, but it means pebble. It doesn't mean this big, gigantic rock. It means pebble or stone. It's something small. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. So the Catholics have said, well, what Jesus was saying was, I'll build my church on Peter. That's why they have the papal um, tradition of succession, right? Everything goes back to Peter. Protestants don't believe that. The way that we interpret this is, on your faith, on your confession, we will build, I will build the church. Now, here's what's really cool about this. Jesus gave Peter a nickname that meant pebble or stone, not a big rock, a little pebble or a little stone. And what I think is cool, what I think we can get out of this is God is saying, your little pebble of faith, your little mustard seed of faith, I can do incredible things with that. I'm so big and I'm so powerful. I just need your affirmation. Just confess. Just walk in faith and I can build incredible things based on your little bit of faith. That's what I believe he was saying to Peter. Is Peter, you, don't, you didn't even know this in your own mind. It was supernaturally revealed to you, but you grabbed hold of it, you confessed, you agreed, and I can do incredible things with that. That's what all God is asking us to do, is see the revelation, see the revelation he's giving us, grab hold of that, and he's going to build a church. Now, let me just say, the word church is ecclesia, and we're used to it meaning like this. In the Greek, it actually means a governmental body or assembly called out to rule. It would be like the city council, something like that. So when he says, I'm building my church, it's not, it's not this like a worship thing, although that's part of it. It's a ruling body. He's saying, I'm establishing a kingdom, and I'm going to build the ruling body on the people that confess who I am and step out in faith. That's all of us here. So we're all part of a ruling body in the kingdom. Isn't that cool? I think that's really cool. Here's the thing I like about Peter, too, you guys. Peter was not, like, he didn't have it all together. He was brash, and he, you know, he told Jesus to do this or that, and Jesus was like, get behind me, Satan, right? And then um, Peter denied the Lord three times, and he went back to fishing. He was not like John, who was the beloved disciple, and Jesus loved him, and all that kind of thing, right? Peter was a brash man who made mistakes, but man, the Lord said, on your kind of faith, I'm going to build the church. Peter is supreme in that sense. I'm not saying we should build a de denomination on him. But Peter does have preeminence in that his boldness, his ability to say, you're the son of God, you're the anointed one. And Jesus called him out for that and said, on people just like you, I am going to build this incredible ruling body who is going to have victory in this world, who's going to change the world as we know it because of your faith because of people just like you. I love that. I love that about Peter. The church, number three, is the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. The church is the primary authority in the kingdom. Now, when I say the church, I don't mean like a church like Hillsong or Bethel or 
you know, Plum Creek. I don't mean that. I mean the church universal, right? The church universal is the centerpiece of the kingdom. But it also means, like I said before, if it's a church universal, every single one of us is a ruler in the kingdom. Every single one of us has authority in the kingdom and has a responsibility to rule. Not just authority, responsibility. When people are put into place and they become um, the city council or the mayor or whoever in the city, if they didn't do their jobs, well, we know people do recalls all the time, but if they didn't do their job, they would be voted out, right? They'd be kicked out. You can't, I shouldn't say this, some governmental jobs, you don't get kicked out like you should. But my point is, your responsibility is to rule when you've been placed in public service. We've been placed as rulers in the kingdom. It's our responsibility to rule. And we need to rule from victory. We need to be examples to the world that victory is our portion. Yeah, the thing is, and the thing I think about this too, if we're going to walk in authority, if we're going to walk in victory, we have to be, uh, we have to be um, associated with a local church, not just the church universal, but we need, to be, we need to be attached intimately with a local church for two reasons. Number one, life is going to come at us. The enemy is going to come at us, and life is going to come at us, and we need fellow believers to pray us through it, to bear our burdens to walk side by side as we experience what the enemy and the world cast at us. That's issue number one. Issue number two, God has said, in order for you to rule, I'm going to need you to get healed. I need you to get healed. You've suffered some things from your family line or for, from circumstances or experiences. I need you to be healed so that you make good judgments in the world, so that you operate from victory and not from a place of lies and deception. The number one place to get healed is the church. Hear me well. The number one place to get healed is the church, the healthy church of God. I believe, you know I believe in counseling and medication. You know I do. You all know me. But I'm here to say God's vehicle of healing in this world, the primary vehicle is the church. And we need to bring healing to one another and to seek healing in a safe environment, and that's the local church. That's why I believe in the local church. Thank you, Steve. Number four. Death cannot prevail, and the power of death will not be able to overcome it. Or, that's in, um, that's the passion, or in NIV, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, in this, in this particular verse, Jesus is using the word Hades or death. Hades in, um, in Greek is the same as Sheol, which is a place where dead people go to live until judgment comes. It's a holding place for the godly and the ungodly, okay, is Hades. But what, the way that he's really saying this is the power of death. And death in this circumstance is not just us dying and decomposing and going into the earth. It is actually a metaphor for the kingdom of the, of the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, the enemy, and the last enemy. It's a personification. It's not death 
Are you following me? It's not death in the literal means. It's a personification of evil. It is actually, you could also go as far to say it is the name for or another name for our enemy, Satan, is death. Okay, so that's what he's saying. The power of death will not prevail against his church. You know, a lot of people, when they read this, um, when they read this scripture, because it says the power of death will not prevail against it, or the gates, the gates will not prevail. And there's two ways that people look at gates is one gate is um, the center of power and strength in a city. Like if you have a city and it's a walled city, the only place the enemy can come through is the gate, right? So a gate represents power or strength. So there's two ways to look at this. The power of death will not prevail against the church. There's two ways to look at this. The power and strength of death can't come to us, won't prevail against us, that's, that's one way. Or the second way is we will prevail against death. We'll take the battle to the city. We'll take the battle to death, and they won't, it won't be able to resist us. There's two ways to look at that, and I think that's really cool. But it's the idea that the power of death has already been um, trampled on, and we don't need to deal with it anymore, even though we may see remnants of it. I just love that. Number five, we have been given heaven's authority. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Keys represent power and authority. Who here saw Downton Abbey? The movie. Thank you, Janet. One of my favorite things about Downton Abbey is it's in an older setting in the early 1900s. It's a very um, prestigious household, and they have a housekeeper, and her name is Mrs. Hughes. Good job. Mrs. Carson, because she got married, right? <laughs> Good job. Gold star. So in those days... Um, the housekeeper carried on her belt a ring of keys, all right? And she was in charge of all of the household um, stores, if you will. So whenever food came in from the village or whatever, she would have to go to the storeroom, and she would open it up, and she would store up the food. And if anyone wanted a particular spice or a particular, the cook, whatever the cook's name, what was the cook's name? Mrs. Patmore. If Mrs. Patmore wanted sugar or spice or some kind of expensive supply, she would have to go to Mrs. Carson and say, I need your key. Can you let me into the storehouse so I can get out X, Y, or Z? She held the authority to whatever was going on in that household. This is the same picture. We've been given keys to the kingdom, and we get to say, loose or bound, loose or bound, according to the will of God, according to the will of God. It's the idea of forbidding or permitting the authority to forbid and permit. Now, how many of you guys, and I will say this, I'm trying to be better about this, but I'm mostly talking to myself. I went the other day to a, a home, Chip Valandra's buying a house, and I went to a home because he wanted to measure the floors. And the, um, 
the seller happened to be there because she's, she's going through a divorce and she has to figure some stuff out. And, and she came in and right away it was evident that there was something on her, something spiritual on her. Her demeanor showed it. She was, um, that's all I'm going to say. And when, and when I saw, I said to Chip, I said, I need to pray for her. We need to offer to pray for her. And now we went, I, I offered to pray for her, and she's like, well, she's very closed in like this. She's like, you know, I don't think that you're going to like what I believe in. That's what she said. I don't, I don't think you should pray for me because you're, you probably wouldn't like what I believe in. And, you know, I was like, and I didn't want to say, well, God doesn't care what you believe in because I think he does. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, that doesn't matter. We can, I can still pray for you. So, so I said, you know that? God still wants to bless you. And um, we just want to play blessing on you. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me right now what you believe in. We do, I just want to. And she was very, like, I don't want to. I don't want that. I haven't had anyone. That's the first time someone's like, yeah, I really don't want you to pray for me because I believe in something else. And I was like, hmm, I don't know how to handle that. So we kind of did this little weird little prayer because we didn't know how to handle it. And then we got out, in the, um, we got out and I told Chip to come in my car. I said, we need to bind up some stuff in there. I said, we need to bind up. There is something on this person spiritually that needs to be rebuked, and we need to take authority over it. Let's do it right now. So he and I prayed, and we just took authority over what was plaguing this person. She was being oppressed. She was being deceived. And we were like, hey, we've got the authority. Let's do it right now. So we started to pray over this person and bind up the spirit of deception and lies and the pain that was on her and everything that was on her. And we loosed God's favor and blessing and, and, and people to come in her life and to, and to show her the right way. And I would like to say I do that a lot, and I really don't. But I think we should do it all the time. I think we come into contact all the time with spiritual things that are going on, and we don't really call it what it is, and I think we need to do that more often. Does that make sense? Um, and I'll leave it at that. And that's going to be my challenge to you is I want you to be more cognizant of your authority when you walk around and start, start doing that kind of stuff, start binding up the enemy. And I'm going to wrap it up with this. Um, we're going we're gonna to watch a video here, a little cute video. It's from one of my favorite movies. You guys watch Powerball? Moneyball. I want to say Powerball. Moneyball. Who's watched Moneyball. So Moneyball is about um, a baseball, a manager. Um, his name is, what's his name, Chris? Billy Bean. Billy Bean, yes. He's a baseball manager of Oakland Athletics. And the Oakland Athletics was a second-tier professional team with an extremely, extremely limited budget. Most of the other successful baseball franchises spent two to three times more on their players than what the Oakland Athletics were able to do. But he took a different approach. He kind of went on a risk, and he did this. Um, he hired a Yale economics graduate and um, d did this type of um, approach called sabermetrics. It's this weird thing. But it, um, over, the t over the time, the team's performance improved dramatically, moving from the bottom of their league into playoff contention and ultimately falling one game short of a World Series appearance. So I want you to watch this. This is, that just backs it up. We're going to watch the um, video. Wait, stop it for one second. This is his right-hand man, 
who is showing him a video of one of the players they actually recruited to their team. Because their whole thing was, hey, we don't want home runs, we just want people to get on base. And so they recruited players that other teams had passed over. And they recruited these players in particular. And this is one of the players they recruited. Come with me Turn the volume up. I want to show you something. No, man, I'm not for film right now. Come on, seriously. Come on, Billy, come on. The Visalia Oaks and our 240-pound catcher, Jeremy Brown, who, as you know, scared to run the second base. This was in the game six weeks ago. This guy's gonna start him off with a fastball. Jeremy's gonna take him to deep center. Here's what's really interesting, because Jeremy's gonna do what he never does. He's gonna go for it. He's gonna round first and he's gonna go for it. Okay? This is all of Jeremy's nightmares coming to life. Oh, they're laughing at him. And Jeremy's about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it. you just cry? How can you not be romantic about baseball? It's a metaphor. I know it's a metaphor. Okay. Here's the thing, you guys. That poor player, he thought he, he, he was, he was going to go for it to second base. He was only used to hitting to second base. And he was overweight. And he got to first base, and he fell down. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe. And he's crawling back to the plate just to get back to first plate or first base. But guess what? He'd already hit a home run. We've all hit home runs because of Jesus Christ inside of us. Every single one of us has hit a home run all the way around. You either believe you've hit a home run or you just struggle to first base and say, this is good enough because this is all I expect out of myself. I can barely make it. But we've all hit home runs. It's just what you believe. It's just what you believe. Isn't that a great picture? Oh, I love it so much. So I'll just wrap it up with this. And then I'm going to ask anyone who wants to come up for prayer, Steve and I will be in here for prayer. We'll say a prayer, whatever you need. But I'm going to wrap up this. Lord, just thank you so much that in you, <laughs> everything is yes and amen. Yes and amen, God. We, we, we're home run hitters because of what you've done on the cross, not because of our past or our abilities, because of who you are on the cross. Let us embrace our real identity, Lord, our true identity. We give you the thanks and the glory for the victory we get to participate in, Lord. 
for the authority that you've given us. Let us rise to our authority, God. We love you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.